Tom Kirsch, welcome to the new school. Thank you. Delight to have you here. Glad to be here. Thank you. Tom Kirsch is uh, an extraordinary person to talk with us about uh, Carl Jung's The Red Book. He was the president of the International Association of Analytic Psychology from 1989 to 1995 and president of the Jung Institute of San Francisco from 1976 to 1978. He's had a private practice for many years and for many years uh, uh, taught and uh, continues to teach or not at Stanford? Or no, yeah, I don't anymore. Taught in the Department of Psychiatry at Stanford University Medical School where he was the first uh, professor uh, to teach Jung at Stanford. I was. I was. Yeah. And more than that, uh, you are a second generation Jungian. Both of your parents were Jungian psychoanalysts. Right. Yeah. Uh, right. Yeah. And they, they were actually analyzed by Jung. They were, primarily. Yeah. Yeah. They had so, other analysts, but that clearly was the number yeah. one. So let's go back to that starting place for you. Uh, how did your father meet Carl Jung? <clears throat> I wasn't around, so I don't know. <laughs> I don't. What he did is he had. A, he was living in Berlin. He had a um, was in psychoanalysis, and after a couple of years, he decided that wasn't for him. And so he went and saw a Jungian um, analyst, actually a lay Jungian analyst named I can't remember her first name is Sussman. And that was back in 1925, 1926. And after two years, in 1928, he decided he wanted to go to Zurich from Berlin and see Jung. And so he wrote Jung a letter. And so in the next, and arranged for some appointments with him in June of 1929. And he stayed there for, I guess, about a month and uh, saw Jung quite regularly for his analysis at the time. And um, just continued. He went there in, 19, in actually 1930. He went back and he gave a lecture, which is an interesting lecture on on the dreams of Jewish his Jewish patients in Berlin at the time, who were already having dreams with the brown brown shirt Nazis in them, and. Um, it was so, <clears throat> this was so popular, the lecture, that he gave it a second time in Zurich. Jung attended both times. Um, and then in 1933, when Hitler came, he left. And, but they uh, continued the correspondence. And I mean, I'll put a plug in right now, is that um, there are 150 letters between my father and Jung, which the, the, um, the, um, Manuscript should be in in April, and then these letters will be published. So, um, which you have edited? I have not edited them. Oh. Another person has edited, named Ann Lammers. She edited the young Victor White correspondence, and she's an expert person with correspondences. Mm -hmm. And there's an awful lot. It's very, they're very. Uh, it takes a lot of time. The correspondences. So, she's been working on it for about three years. And, um, and this was a substantial correspondence. As I understand, 
many people consider it the largest correspondence not to have been right, uh, right. published so far. Right. right, and that was already thought that way 10 years ago mm -hmm. before some of these other correspondences have been mm -hmm. uh, published. Basically because they're, the fact is that they didn't live in the same t city, so they didn't just talk about, well, what time are we going to meet and where are we going to meet? Um, and so they talked, and it's come, after I've been reading, rereading those letters, I realize that, um, you, that my father, was, if not the first, I don't think he, he was the, almost the first Jewish patient that, my dad, that Jung saw after Jung's break with Freud. That's the, fascinating. Yeah. Now, you are the author of an extraordinary book called The Jungians, A yeah. Comparative and Historical Perspective, uh, which I really recommend because uh, what you've done meticulously, which you obviously researched in part when you were president of the International Association of Analytical Psychology, which was the Jungian is the Jungian Association, is that you analyzed the, uh, the di diaspora, the dissemination of Jungian thought uh, in all the countries uh, of the world where it moved, uh, including chapters on uh, uh, not only countries, but also Northern California, Southern California, New York, and so forth. So you took a very careful look at how this spread out. I did. Yeah. And one of the most fascinating aspects of this, uh, going back to your father as, as uh, Jung's first Jewish patient after his break with Freud, is that uh, in, in historical context, and you and I have discussed this before, there were two things that blocked a lot of uh, uh, reception of Jung. Uh, one was the odor of Nazi uh, sure. uh, collaboration or identification. Right. And the other was that people saw him as a mystical, woolly-headed person. Right. And those were the two major blocks. They were. But what's fascinating about the Jewish one is that it's true, as you point out, that, that and I'd like you to expand on this or, or contradict me, that, that, uh, that Jung did have a relationship that was at best ambiguous with, with the Nazi phenomenon for a while. But it's also true that the Jewish students who were with him contemporaneously in Switzerland and in Germany at that time right. not only stuck with him, but were a principal factor in the dissemination worldwide of his thought. I would agree with you 100%. Yeah. And that is fascinating. Well, you, you see, what happened to these, there was a group of young Jewish, German-Jewish students, intellectuals, whatever, and they, um, you know, they'd all been brought up in Orthodox Jewish homes, and they'd given up their, you know, they'd, kind of rejected that, that kind of upbringing. And they found in reading Jung a kind of spiritual path for themselves, the individuation path that, um, that, that, that helped them in a way to uh, foster their own individual growth. And um, I remember my mother saying to me many times, um, she said, you know, that Jung helps me to find my, my Judaism, my Jewishness, because she'd been a completely assimilated German Jew at that point. And, uh, and until Hitler came along, she never had any idea what it meant, you know, what it meant to be Jewish. 
Now, you actually met Jung yourself as a, as a boy. I, well, I hope I was a little older than a boy. Oh, you were a young man? <laughs> well, I was in my 20s. Oh, you were in your uh, <laughs> okay. So I would say that, I, I mean, I think psychologically I was a boy, oh. but, but, uh, but I was already in my 20s. Tell us about that meeting. Well, um, I actually met him on three different occasions. Um, the first occasion was by accident, which was that I was in Europe with two young with two other boy students, and we were in London, and I developed um, appendicitis. And the English, the new English social, um, the health scheme had just gone into place, and they offered me um, to see me in about six weeks. <laughs> and uh, my mother at the time was in Zurich, um, doing some analysis, and she got on the phone with her brother, my uncle, and said, just send him over. So I took the next, you know, I took a plane over to Zurich, and she whisked me into this hospital where the professor did the, uh, uh, you know, did the appendectomy under ether, of all things. But it was very nice, and so while I was, <laughs> while I was recovering, <laughs> While I, so I was recovering, so I was in Zurich. It happened to be Jung's 80th birthday. So um, the part, there was a great big party. I don't know many of you who, well, a lot of you remember, the, the Dolder, the Dolder Grand Hotel. And we, there was a big party for him, and there was a receiving line. And so my mother being who she, the kind of person she was, she pushed me into the receiving line. <laughs> Uh, when I wasn't supposed to be there, and Jung loved it. So he, he kind of talked to me a little bit and said, it's great to meet you and this and that and whatever. So that was my first encounter with him. My second encounter was, that was 1955, was the next year, and in, the, in between, his wife Emma had developed stomach cancer and had died mm -hmm. in November of 1955. So. We were in Zurich in 1956. This was the beginning of the International Jungian Association, and my dad was there for that. And, and uh, Jung invited him out for tea, um, for afternoon tea, and he took me along. And I had just been reading two essays in analytical psychology and... Uh, oh, my God. What, so what I, I did is... One of the things that he says in, there in, one of, in part of the two essays is that all knowledge is relative. And so I got real smart and I said, you know, Professor Jung, that's an absolute statement. So he, he loved the fact that I kind of challenged him lightly and that's what I remember from the tea. And um, what, we, what he also did was to show my father the sculpture that he'd been working on since his wife's death and uh, so that he was, he was still in mourning. This was about seven, eight months later. And he was a very pleasant thing. Then the third time I met him was <clears throat> in 1958 and I was, uh, by this time I was um, beginning my analysis, own analysis, and I realized that I needed 
that I had some issues and I was in Zurich and my dad was also in Zurich and he was teaching at the Institute. And he, Frau Jaffe called and said to my dad, James, he can see you on Friday morning. Can you come out? And he said, oh no, I have to teach at the Institute. Is it all right if my son comes out? Well, now he's met me a couple of times. He says, yes, bring, have him come out. So I went out, but this was interesting because you didn't go out to tell him what was on your mind, what your problems were. This is 1958. He was working on, on, the, on his um, little book on flying saucers. UFOs. The UFOs. Mm -hmm. And so what you did is you brought him material that he could use, mm -hmm. potentially use. Mm -hmm. So my analyst gave me, told me a couple of dreams that I ought to bring him to show, you know, that he, that Jung would be interested in these dreams. Now, the thing is that what I remember is I walked into his office to study, and so he he looks at me and he says, "So you wanted to see the old man before he dies, did you?" <laughs> Which, in a way, is true. And I cannot remember another thing from the hour. <laughs> that just knocked me out. I'm sure I told him these dreams I was supposed to tell him. I don't know what he said about them. Uh, you know, it's all a blank after that. I have talked to another person, Mel Kettner. Some of you may know him. And he... What happened, he was a student at the Zurich, in Zurich at the time, and as when, you, when you were in a, a student at the time, there were only 20 students, uh, or at the most 30. When you finished, you had an hour with Jung. And he had, this, he had a similar reaction. He can't remember a single thing from the hour, but he remembers the impression. I mean, Jung was a big man, you know, he was very warm, and um, but also very direct, and uh, and you just felt a, something special in his presence. Mm -hmm. So that's my. It certainly helped me to decide to become a Jungian analyst. <laughs> the Red Book, Liber yes. Novus. The Liber Novus. Liber okay. Novus, or the okay. new the new book. Uh, I have a colleague, Howard Dillon, in the audience here, and Howard, I wonder if you would. Uh, stand and read for us the quote on the back of the Red Book. The years of which I have spoken to you when I pursued the inner images were the most important time of my life. Everything else is to be derived from this. It began at that time, and the later details hardly matter anymore. My entire life consisted in elaborating what had burst forth from the unconscious, and flooded me like an enigmatic stream and threatened to break me. That was the stuff and material for more than only one life. Everything later was merely the outer classification, the scientific elaboration, and the integration into life. But the numinous beginning, which contained everything, was then. C.G. Jung, 1957. Okay. So, 
We had uh, lunch together before you had had a chance to immerse yourself in this. And right. Then we've exchanged quite a number of emails as you immersed yourself in it. But I haven't had a chance to really hear the response. And really, it, it's, it's a, a privilege. Um, because here you are, a, a, a sort of at the heart of the Jungian community. Uh, I know at the time we talked, you had ambivalent feelings about the publication of this. I did. And I'm curious where you come out now that you've had a chance to immerse yourself in it. I'm going to talk about my ambivalence first. There are <clears throat> several reasons for my ambivalence. I was just reading last night in this book. This is notes from the 1925 seminar. And this seminar gives, um, what can I say? It, it, um, it's where Jung first talks about some of his earlier experiences and talks about the experience of the Red Book, writing the Red Book. But he says that one of the things he says there, I, he talks about how he didn't want to become a psychiatrist because his father, who was a minister, worked in, the, in an insane asylum and he didn't want to do anything that had to do with his father. Well, that's one of my ambivalences about this Red Book. <laughs> uh, turns out, if you read the introduction, that my father was one of the few people that Jung actually showed the Red Book to. And so, all I can say is that I have heard about the Red Book. I can't remember a time that I hadn't heard about it. So I can't remember when I first heard about it. So, so that that's, a, that's a personal thing of why I have a certain reluctance to reading it. Secondly, there's a thing in, in almost all European countries, which in German is called the Persönlichkeitsschütze, which is the protection of the personality. And for instance, I go, I'm going to digress a bit. The Deirdre Bear, who wrote the biography of Jung, had to wait an entire year um, to get it published in German because um, the publishers feared that the Jung family would sue them on this person, on the, that there would be something derogatory about, uh, about them in the book. And so memoirs and biographies in Europe are much harder to, to, to write and to sell because, because the publishers have to be very careful about what they say about the, the individual. Now, connected with that is that those of you who know Switzerland is the Swiss are very private people. And the only persons when I was in analysis in Zurich who would ask me who my analyst was, was an American. A Swiss would never even dream of that. Okay? So, um, uh, I mean, and actually it would come as a shock when an American said it to me because I knew it was just so, it was very private. And so when reading this Red Book, and it's so highly personal about Jung. And I'm very ambivalent about whether I want to 
be that close to, you know, get that kind of, it's not my business. That was his business. And then to go along with that is second thing. The third thing that gave me, gave me has given me difficulty in reading this is that there's an awful lot of New Testament quotations in this book. And he refers back to the New Testament many, many times in, in the Red Book. And that is not a language that I am particularly familiar with. So these are three uh, reasons for my ambivalence, which in some ways still remain. Mm -hmm. I mean, and I would say fourth, it is, a, not only is it eight pound, eight ounces heavy, it's also heavy to read. I mean, it is not enjoyable, it's not fun reading, it's not, I mean, it's, it's an easy book to put down. <laughs> <laughs> well, let, let, me, let me offer from completely outside okay. a, a different perspective. Fine. Uh, first of all, I found the, uh, well, let's start with the most obvious thing. I, I found the illustrations oh, they're stunning beyond belief. They're and stunning. Uh, I hope many of you are getting a chance to look at the copies that are around the room. But, you know, this, they, it, it looks like a medieval manuscript. And uh, there are these astonishing mandalas and paintings, um, uh, you know, just the most remarkable look to the book. Um, Secondly, I found the, uh, the introduction by Sonu Shamdasani. Sonu Shamdasani. An extraordinary piece of work. It was. It is. It is a lengthy uh, contextualization and analysis of the content that really makes it possible to read and appreciate the book itself. Right. And the third thing um, is that far from finding it difficult to read, I am drawn into it. I mm -hmm. am just drawn into the power of it, and particularly because having had a, you know, I don't know what, 20-year at least uh, uh, sense of fascination with Jung, and a very long sense that he is at the heart of most of the transpersonal psychologies right. today, in right. addition to the culture. The very fact that, as this quote that Howard so kindly read us uh, indicates, this is the source. This is the source. It's and true. so to be able to come into the source uh, is extraordinary. And, and again, Shandasani does a beautiful job of indicating that while Jung is the source, in, in a sense, there were a whole set of streams of thought, uh, Nietzsche, you know, a whole bunch sure. of others, sure. uh, who came into Jung, uh, and so William James and many others. And so he was working uh, both with a, a very restricted materialist mainstream culture, but then with a very broad uh, counterculture, if you will, of influences that were deeply supportive of the kinds of things that he's doing here. Right. Okay. I don't know where, I can go two ways with this. Either one, one way is to give you what I think is a very important contextual thing in terms that's, that Sham Dasani mentions, but I don't think emphasizes to the extent that I 
and I think a lot of us who are Jungian analysts would would um, would um, emphasize that is that a tr that Jung from 1907 to 1913 was a great follower of Freud. Yes. And um, from and he was in the beginning he was the crown prince. Um, and he was to be and in 1910 as a matter of fact Ferenczi wanted Jung to be the president of the International Psychoanalytic Association for Life. And that but that by January 1913, the two had had their differences. Um, one of the main areas of difference was the book, the chapter Von Lungen and Symbol and De Libido, the, which is translated into English as the psychology of the unconscious and in the collected works of Symbols of Transformation, where in the second half of that, Jung um, disagrees and plays down the sexual, infantile sexuality part of Freud's um, theory and um, talks about the symbolic aspect of, um, in a much wider sense, and talks about two kinds of thinking, the directed thinking and fantasy thinking. And um, Freud supposedly didn't read the second, well, the second half, and it, they had discussions, and then they decided to have silence. The rest is silence, quoting Hamlet, and uh, that was Jung's last letter to Freud in January of 1913. Now, Jung met Freud one more time at an international con uh, conference in Munich in, in September of 1913, where Jung was still the president, and he still got overwhelmingly re-elected re as president of the International Psychoanalytic, much to the chagrin of the Viennese and Freud. Uh, they did not talk at that meeting. But then, so that's September 1913. Now, Jung was also the editor of the Jahrbuch, which was the main psychoanalytic um, journal at that point. And in October, something, 25th or something like that of 1913, he, re, he resigned as editor of the Yarbrook. Now, November 12th, he makes his first entry into the Red Book. So this is all in the context of his having um, Lost this friendship with Freud and the and the and all the all the people followed Freud rather than Jung. So Jung was quite isolated at that point. Um, so that that was that was a very. I think I want to just emphasize that because Jung was suffering at the time. It was not some. It was not easy. And I will mention one more thing about their relationship because in, in August of 1953, Kurt Eisler, who was head of the Freud Archive, interviewed Jung on his relationship to Freud. And that is going to be available from the Library of Congress in 2013. <laughs> it's, it's been under... 
You can go to the Library of Congress in Washington and, and read it there. Which you did. Which I did. And took notes. And took notes. <laughs> but you can't, and it's in German, and um, I don't, my German isn't that good, but I, I got the gist of it, it's 60 pages. And at the beginning, of course, it's Jung says, I don't want this to be out for 200 years. Mm -hmm. And Eisler says, don't worry, don't worry, we'll keep it quiet for 50 years, don't worry about it. Um, but at the very end of the interview, uh, Jung says, you know, Freud, I've, I never have met a man like Freud. And I've never, he, I never would have, with anybody else, spent 13 hours nonstop. So, so whatever happened between them, in 1953, Jung was still extremely respectful of what had happened with Freud. Mm -hmm. So I, I think that gives you some um, background about, uh, and so that the, and I think these things emerged, use your word, I mean they didn't, it wasn't planned. And when it started coming, he, um, I mean the first, the Liber Novus, the, the Liber Primus is really about sacrifice. What I'll put it in other language than your language. It is that that the pre, primer libus, the li, liber primus, excuse me, is about is the about first book, the, the first, first book. book. It's right. about is about sacrifice, mm -hmm. and Jung has this dream about Siegfried, and Siegfried is the hero, and the and the, it's the death of the hero, and. Um, with the death of the hero come, be, comes also for Jung the, the death of ambition and the death of f being kind of um, a professor, being uh, a scholar. I mean, having to prove to the outer world and allowing himself to go to Nietzsche, whose language was much more familiar to him and or... Um, and allowing himself to go into his inner world in a way that that he would not have allowed, which he would not have allowed himself before, and he really makes a break with psychoanalysis with that kind of rational thinking of Freud's, and um, makes a real break, and he does. He give he then resigns in early 1914 from the International Psychoanalytic Association. <laughs> And, you know, resigns his presidency and resigns his um, faculty position at the University of Zurich. So he does all the, all these things. So that, that's my language. And I think that's the first book is, is really about that for Jung. Now, can, I'm going to make one more statement about this. Is that although the Red Book goes from 1913 to 1930, the two things. One, the main work on this is between 1913 and 1918, and actually all the fantasies, all the active imagination, which is what he called it, the inner work, takes place between November, I think something like November 12th, and April 19th. 
So, and they go into a series of black books, which then Jung spends many years later on in the evenings doing the calligraphy and then the paintings to go with, with, the, with the rest of the text. Mm -hmm. And when he, and I want to come back to the content, but just when he finally, he, he debates with his colleagues what he should do with this Red Book right. over many years. Right. Uh, doesn't, can't decide because he realizes how seminal it is, but he thinks it's professional suicide in yeah. effect to put it out. Right, that's exactly and, what he thinks. And when he finally abandons it, it is because alchemical studies became fundamental for him as an approach to uh, further work. Well, let's take a look at, there's a mandala here. The last one that he paints, I can't remember now what page it's on. It's a Chinese one. It's done. It, I think you may huh? have your hand on it. I do. Yeah. That no, it? that's not it. Well, that's that's, that's okay. in the front piece of archetypes in the collective unconscious. That was the first one. Um, page what? One thirty. One thirty. Let's check that out. Nope, that's not it. Uh, we got time. Okay. Here. What page? 163. This one it was done in 1927. It was his last mandala that he did for the, for the Red Book. Point that one that way, Tom. Okay, I'll point this I'll point one this way. Point. And um, then a friend of his, uh, Richard Wilhelm, who was a, a, a German missionary in China for many years, and who had, Jung had met at the School of Wisdom in Darmstadt in 1923, and they'd become very close friends. Uh, as a matter of fact, in Wilhelm's funeral, a memorial service, he said that I've never learned so much from one individual as I did from Richard Wilhelm. And of course, that was the, book, the I Ching and the Book of Changes. And, um, but what Wilhelm did was sent him a Chinese alchemical text called The Secret of the Golden Flower in 1928. And when Jung saw that, he said, I'm no longer isolated. I'm no longer alone. I see that this, this, this is um, what people have been doing through the centuries. And from Chinese alchemy, he went to Western alchemy. And from 1930 on, he became essentially an alchemist. So, um, And so, if you look at his collected works, you find... Uh, two volumes um, on alchemy, one called Psychology and Alchemy, the other called Alchemical Studies. Well, and then, of course, Mysterium Conjunctionum is, is, yeah. is all alchemical. Right. Which was the last volume. That was the last one. Right. Yeah, the right. Mysterium was the last. Right. So these are volumes uh, 12, 13, and 14. Of, uh, right. So really... Almost a third of his collected, well, almost a quarter of his collected right, works right, are right, on alchemical right, studies. Right. And he saw alchemical studies, and I think you've already begun to say this, as 
as the symbolic language in which the work that he was doing had been held right. in the Western tradition. For, exactly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Michael, you understand it very well. <laughs> I, I understand little pieces of it. Uh, so uh, let me go back. We've, we've talked about some of the later context, but let's just fill in a little of the early context because Jung was born in 1875. You mentioned his father was a pastor in the Swiss Reformed Church. And in Memories, Dreams, Reflections, his autobiography, uh, he, uh, he talks about uh, some of his childhood dreams. And as a child, he had extraordinarily powerful dreams and uh, uh, visual hallucinations. And he could evoke uh, images voluntarily. And so there's one image or dream, I forget which one it is, uh, when he was 12, that he had, remember his father was a pastor, in which God unleashes a turd on the cathedral roof, shattering the cathedral, and leaving Jung with a sense of bliss, that there was a living God who was over and above the church and the Bible. That right. he, you know, right. very much like, it reminded me of Martin Luther in some ways, uh -huh. you know, the same uh, sure. visceral... Uh, uh, energy. And even early on he's reading Goethe's Faust and Schopenhauer and what he loved in them was that they took evil seriously. Mm -hmm. uh, and then when you come back to the Red Book, part of uh, this inner transformation that he, t he does is that, uh, he, as you mentioned, uh, while he's writing uh, the, the Red Book, uh, he's reading Nietzsche's Thus Spake Zarathustra, which he had read when he was younger. Right. He's rereading it. Right. Uh, but whereas uh, Nietzsche proclaims the death of God, Libra Nova depicts the rebirth of God in the soul. But the rebirth of God in the soul is a marriage of the, of the Christian God and the devil, right. uh, which creates the framework for that self that contains it all. Right. Yeah. You, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Now, the difference, what, what, what we would say as Jungians about the Red Book and the difference between this and Zarathustra mm -hmm. is that Z Zarathustra, there's no Nietzsche, there's no I, there's no ego mm -hmm. to talk to, to the to the the uh, Ubermensch to mm -hmm. to talk to Zarathustra. In the Red Book, there is always a dialogue between the I and whatever, whoever. The figure is that he's talking to in the t in, 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 in the uh, in the red book. Now the I is that identical for for and here I'm not sure is that identical for him. In other words, I under, as I understand it, the I is connected to the persona. Is that correct? No, it's connected to the ego. Oh, it's connected it's to, to the, the ego. ego. Okay. So the so what he's saying is that you, and I mean this is this is an essential part of what he then. What he did here, he then called, he made a, a technique which he called active imagination, which, um, which, which is where there's a conscious dimming of the ego and then you allow the unconscious contents to come forth. Mm -hmm. And so, um, but you see the ego is never, is never gone, it's always there. And that is the difference between what you read in the Red Book, because there's always a dialogue. It's always a dialogue between the I, as it's said in the book, and wh whoever the Red One or 
or, or whoever he's talking to in, the, in, 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 in his active imagination. Now, the source of superior awareness is named Philemon. Right. And, and Philemon, though, interestingly enough, well, this is another interesting story, which is that Philemon doesn't, he appears very much, very much at the end of the second book and is a big part of the, what's called the scrutinies. Now here I have to t tell you about a friend of mine, Murray Stein in Switzerland, who reads German very well, much better than me. I don't read German well. That, that's a funny term, because the German word is prüfung, which means test. And so the scrutinies are, are testings, and that's where, you, and the reason it's in here, because it's not part of the Red Book, it was not, it's not, if you look at the original of the Red Book, the, it does not contain that part. So it contains the first book and the second, second book, book and that's but not it. the scrutiny. Not the scrutinies. And only the first and second book. And the, but the reason that they put it in is that the scrutinies or testings uh, were also, you see, these, Jung didn't write them in the Red Book. He writes them in five or six, I can't remember now, black, black books. books. Yeah and then takes the material from the black books and puts it in the red book. And, and buys, he puts it on parchment first and then finds that the parchment, the, the uh, ink runs, and so he buys a leather-bound red book and, um, and uh, does these illuminated manuscripts like a medieval uh, manuscript. And he spends evenings and you know, his spare time doing this. This becomes a, a, a real project for him. And I think part of why he gave it up is that he had gone past it. You know, he wanted to let it go. And there were other things from the period between 1913 and 1918 which he didn't publish. For instance, there's an article in volume eight called The Transcendent Function. Which doesn't get published on 1957. Seven or something like right. that. And that was also it done in 1916 at the height of the time that he was doing the Red Book. So it was also, he, 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 was, he, did not, he was ambivalent about publishing this. And um, so was his son. But what happened, I think what really turned the family to publishing it was that there's one woman named Carrie Baines, who's the translator of many of Jung's books. Uh, wonderful, I never met her, but she was, uh, um, I mean, I just, uh, she's an interesting woman. She was born in Mexico from a German father and American mother, grew up in Louisville, Kentucky, went to Vassar College, became a doctor, and went to Zurich, and had analysis, and never wanted to become an analyst, and yet, in this room, there are um, Joe Wheelwright and Joe Henderson, both the founders of our San Francisco. They knew her well, and she advised them. But uh, the reason I mention her is that when, is that in 1924, 1925, she, um, Jung asked her to make a copy. And so she made a copy of the Red Book, which is in the Yale Library. And so... What Sham Dasani said, look, there are versions out of the Red Book. Let's 
it, he told the family, look, you might as well have an authorized version rather than having these several floating versions. That's the one we know of, but he thinks there are others out there too. So that's why the family finally agreed to, um, to, to the publication of this. So you, you talked about your ambivalence about this and, yeah. and the difficulties, but if you step beyond your ambivalence and speak to what happened to you beyond the ambivalence in reading this, what, what are you left with from this immersion in the Red Book? What I'm left with is um, a very, well, several things. One is that it has forced me to reread Jung after many years of sort of not reading very much of him. But what's the most important thing is that I realize how Jung's, because the, the, the first book is the rediscovery of his soul. Right. It's the reconnection with his soul and having to kill um, you know, the death of Siegfried and um, it, it's this, that's the most important thing. And it's fascinating in a way. I mean, if I get over my ambivalence, the fascination is to see the depth of what Jung went to in, in trying to kind of confront his demons and to confront, um, also his creativity through the, um, th through the Red Book. Mm -hmm. And the figures that he comes up um, ag with or against or dialogues with, you know, I mean, they're, they're just, uh, there's Elijah and Salome and, and then uh, Is Istubar, and, who's an earlier form of Gilgamesh, and then the red one, and then the scholar. The red one being the devil. The devil, the red right. one being the devil, and then the scholar in, out in the desert and uh, with his young daughter. I mean, there's just, it, there, and then finally Philemon, who is, um, Elijah is Philemon's teacher. And of course, if you go to, you know, during all this, Jung in 1923 starts the tower in Bollingen. And he has a big painting of Philemon, you know, on the wall of, of, of his tower there in, Phil in uh, Bollingen. Let's talk a little about Jung in, in a broader perspective. Okay. Um, I said to you, and I know this is a question of taste, but for me, and uh, I suspect for others in this room, in historical perspective, it seems to me that Jung is at least as important as Freud. And in many respects, uh, his psychology is a, a richer uh, and uh, somehow more, uh, more holistic uh, psychology. Um, and it's intriguing, and you describe it in, in your book, The Jungians, A Comparative and Historical Perspective. Um, the tremendous um, professional cost that there was to you and, and many other Jungians of, of, of being interested in Jung. I mean, you were a rising young faculty member at Stanford. You had a, a colleague, a, you know, who I also respect greatly, who, who encouraged you to forget about Jung because your career would go much right. better. Um, right. And so there was 
on the one hand, a tremendous penalty for being interested in Jung in the profession. Well, there was. Definitely. But on the other hand, Jung became one of the seminal sources for, quote, New Age thought. Right. So the culture blossomed in a Jungian direction right. while the profession penalized those who uh, shared this perspective. That's exactly what happened. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it is. So I've been thinking just about, and I don't have any, but if one believes as Jung believed in synchronicity, mm -hmm. what is the synchronicity of the publication and the enormous unexpected success of the Red Book now? Well, <clears throat> you know, <clears throat> let's, I'm now I'm going to get, I'm, 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 I'm going to stall for time. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm going to uh, go into the details of the publication of this, yeah. which is that the publisher made 3,500 copies of this. And then the article in the New York Times in about September 20th or something like that came out about the Red Book and, and Jung and all this and that. And then by the time the book was released on October 7th, they had tw 12, Norton had 12,000 pre-orders, okay? Which shocked them because, I mean, I mean, they did a beautiful job printing this. I mean, they got their finest people to do the, uh, the prints and everything like that. And it's now in its sixth printing. And you know, I don't know how many of you have tried to get the book, but it was awfully hard to get at the beginning. Um, it still takes months. It still takes months. So, I mean, it's, 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 it's crazy. You could buy it from the Rubin Gallery in New York for $200, but if you want to buy it from Amazon for 115 or 120 you have to wait months. Now, so obviously it, it hit something, um, and I think somehow there was, I have to hand it to the young, the young heirs and Sonu Shamdasani for being able to gauge that this book would hit a core of spiritual and religious feeling that, that 87, 90 years ago would not have been, I think the, the, the um, Jung was already criticized for being a, a woolly mystic, among other things, and th this would have just ruined him. Um, so I think there's somewhere an openness to the unconscious in, in our modern psyche that, that, ha that wasn't there before. And um, I, I mean that I don't know how, how else to put that. Um, and I think that that um, it's given me a new respect for Jung. It's given me a new respect for somebody like Jim Hillman, who has all along talked about the soul, using that word, where you know that that that's kind of not a quote, scientific term to use. And I think um, in that sense, um, and you can, one can feel how deeply Jung was, con was trying to make a connection and how, 
how deep he was trying to go in himself to find that in himself and find out all the darkest elements in himself at the same time. So anyway, that's how my answer goes. When you look at this global diaspora of Jungian thought and Jungian uh, analysts, uh, at the end of your book, you, you reflect on uh, uh, what, what it means to be a Jungian, what, uh, what, uh, what, goes, what, what goes into being a Jungian. And I wondered if you would reflect on what, as you say here, what holds Jungians together. Uh, uh, it's become a very diverse community. Very, very. Uh, so what does it mean to be a Jungian today? That's a good question. Um, <clears throat> I think on one level, to be a Jungian today means that you, it's like a family. You know, that you're related by who your analysts saw, and in other words, you know, who did, how, how many generations down, and they, and they all, you know, when you get a large clan together, you know, who, who knows what the connection is anymore, except that they have some connection to being a part of this family. And I think that's, there is somehow a family, or at this point, there are enough analysts, so it's a community. And they're very, very diverse and, uh, at this point. So that's one thing. Secondly, what I say is that I think you'll find very few Jungians who are who would be take a positivistic point of view of of the world. They have some sense of something beyond themselves, which is greater than themselves. That they are not in that they, in a sense, give credence to and belief and and honor. And I think that is a major thing. I think that's a major thing that brings people to Jung is that they're looking for some um, greater meaning for their life. Okay? Here's a, a line at the very end of your book in which you say, the question is whether in the future there will be a classification of therapists called Jungians. It is what we are called now. And this book has traced the history from the beginning to the present. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Which is a beautiful line because what you're really saying is it doesn't matter if the future right. is called Jungian. That matters, we have always been here and we will we'll always, always be, be there. Right. That's right. That's right. That's <laughs> the, yeah. That I absolutely that's that was my point and I'm glad you've read it carefully and you picked it up right because that, that's what I wanted to say. And I must say that I did not start that way. I mean, I started that be Jungian or you're out of here. You know, don't talk to me, okay? <laughs> but I've, over the 50 years that I've been in the field now, almost 50 years, that that's, uh, it's completely changed. Tom Kirsch, thank you for being with us at the New School. Well, thank you. So we're going to open it up for conversation now, and uh, while we do that, uh, those of you who've been here before know this is the time I start to pass the hat. Uh, if you can contribute anything, uh, 25 cents, a dollar, uh, it all helps, so the, this will go around and uh, you can put what you'd like in it. Um, 
And so let me start with the people. Let me ask how many serious Jungians are in the room, just out of uh, curiosity. Okay. And, yeah, no, I want to I start with comments from self-identified serious Jungians. Uh, um, so the first tranche of questions, we're going to hear from the serious Jungians first. And please keep your questions brief. Go ahead. Um, hi, Doc. Thanks hi. a lot for being here. Uh, I think I, my training analyst shared an office with you in Palo Alto years and years ago. That's so, a hidden. So I used to, yeah, that's a hidden. Who, I guess, is taking care of Microsoft now. Um, the reason I'm asking, I want to ask you this question is that I was interviewed for a silly reason, really, just because I was doing something uh, on a radio station here about a year and a half ago. Uh, as a Jungian psychotherapist, and they, they asked me a couple pointed questions, which you brought up, uh, about Jung and his relationship to the Nazis. Uh, and, uh, and, and that's the one that I really want to hearken to just for a second. I told, uh, as my answer to that, two different things. I said there are a number of Jungians who are Jewish and who have lived long enough to have been able to attest to the fact that he helped to secret German analysts out of the country uh, at a great risk to his own life as well as his professional standing in Germany. Uh, the other thing that I've read about him, which I'd like you to comment about, please, um, is that he had had, and I always blow who it was, I think it was Goering, that he had had quite a angry shouting match of an argument with, uh, which when, when I get real hostile remarks from friends I know that are Jews about Jung, I always say, how many Jungs went? And, uh, how many Jews went and argued with uh, Goring? You know, how many of your people stood up to him and said, "Why well, you stupid?" Blah 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 blah. And can you throw any light on those? Well, number two is not true. It is not. No. Okay. No. And the thing is, um, I'll have to find out where I read that. Sorry. Well, you see, here's the problem. Goring had a cousin named Matthias Goering, who was a psychiatrist. And nobody would have cared about Matthias Goering if his cousin hadn't become Field Marshal Hermann Goering and the big, you know, the evil man under, you know, next to Hitler. We would never have thought, we, Goering is a perfectly decent name. Um, but Matthias Goering was a psychiatrist, he was a professor, and he was the head of the German Medical Psychotherapy Association. And it was this medical association to which Jung was... What happened is... Now I'm blocking. I can't believe it. Oh, my God. Listen, we're all at that age. Okay. Some of us are anyway, at that age. So. Anyway, I mean, I've, he, he was... Um, a Catholic psychiatrist, he did the um, first tests on the ectomorph, mesomorph, and endomorph mm. that Jack Shelton made popular here. Mm -hmm. No, it's not Shelton. It was Sh Shelton got it from somebody, this guy in Germany. Who's, huh? Was it Kretschmer? Kretschmer. Yeah. Kretschmer, thank you, Paul. And uh, Kretschmer became um, resigned because he didn't like what the Nazis were doing. And so Jung had been made honorary vice president. 
But you see, this was a German society, so you know Jung couldn't be an actual member. So what he did is he said, look, if we're going to have, if you're going to make me president, I'm going to have to, I'm, this is going to have to be an international organization, number one. And number two, you, since you won't allow the German Jews to be members, they have to become individual, they have to be allowed to be individual members. Okay? Jung said this. Yes, and they agreed to that. And I will tell you that we have found my father's individual membership card in that association from 1933. You see when, so that this really actually, I mean this is an actual example of somebody who, who was allowed to continue to be a member because he was Jewish as an individual member, although he got kicked out because, you see, Goering was a Nazi. And then the next thing, this Matthias Goering, Hermann Goering never enters the picture. The Matthias Goering um, then puts out a uh, copy of, of their journal. They, they published a journal and it was supposed to be for only German members. And in it was reading Mein Kampf and all this Nazi propaganda. Unfortunately, it went to all the international members. And Jung was quite upset about that. This is 1934, because that was over and you know, against what he'd wanted. So, um, uh, but you know, once those things go out, and you see Jung, you know, and Jung's name is on the on the cover because it's not much. You know, you, the retraction doesn't mean much. Okay. It's like in the New York Times, you know, when they put a retraction for something <laughs> that's in the, you know, it doesn't take away from the whole thing. So anyway, that that's how I would answer that part of your question. I have answered this. I can't tell you how many times I've had to answer this question because. Both my parents were Jewish, and they were in analysis with him at the time, and so I've had to, um, uh, I've had to answer this question more often than I, um, and I could, I could go into a lot of detail. But the flirtation with Nazism was real. The flirtation with Nazism was real, but it was also thought to be, the, the flirtation with Nazism was on the basis of that it was grounding the German psyche in mythology, right. in the Teutonic mythology. Right. And that's what appealed to Jung. Right. But it, it quickly turned. I mean, that, that he went, uh, by 1935, that was right. gone. Okay. Other questions from Jungians? Are you a Jungian, sir? Yes, go ahead. <laughs> um, my question has to do with, partly with, you mentioned ambivalence, showing ambivalence, about the, the publication of, of yeah. the book. And I'm, I guess I'm thinking that, you know, the idea of this, the numinous is something that we are fascinated by, but also there's dread associated with it. Um, and I think Jung was uh, exploring an area that was really, I think from his own uh, description, really he was feared for his own sanity at some times. Right. So he was touching parts of himself that were at the time at least, he didn't know what was happening. He was, he was right. moving through territory that was probably quite frightening for him. 
Very. And trying to hold on. Right. And, um, and I'm wondering, at that time, I think he talked about the value of this ego self-axis. And he didn't call it that. He but just, later it was called that, I think. Right. He was more just concerned about his ego. He didn't, right. he he didn't have to, a concept of a self yeah. yet. Yeah, and if you look at the imagery here, you can see that a lot of imagery is somewhat violent and um, overwhelming. Uh, so I guess what I'm, my question is, do you think that Jung went the full distance, in a sense, of exploring his experience because other traditions would suggest it's good to let go of the ego uh, and have an experience of no self and I think Jung was very opposed to that idea he felt that was not something good for Westerners he felt that that was maybe Eastern people could do that because of their cultures but we couldn't do that in the West and we had to hold on to this ego sense of identification and a sense of who we were and it was inadvisable to, to let go of, of a sense of ego and have this experience of no self, which is you know much more prominent in the East. Sure. What do you think about that whole story? I agree. <laughs> Great. <laughs> Thank you. Other questions from Jungian? Other questions from Jungian? Huh? Will you go to expand? I could. Well, I'd, I'd, I'll ask you not to, because okay. you agree, and let's go to another question, because that, you said it, and I'm trying to keep this economical, unless there's something no, you really no, want to no, say. No, I, I wanted to say I agree with Jung on this. You do? Yeah. Oh, okay, thank you. So, in other words, you, are, you not only agree with the analysis, you agree with Jung's perspective. I didn't state right. my position, I just stated it as a question. Oh. I apologize. Why don't you go ahead? And <laughs> well, no. The, I mean, Jung, Jung makes later on. He makes it very. Um, he warns about people going going eastern. He was. I would say of all the cultures that he examined, that he felt closest to, I would say, Taoism was the closest thing for him. I mean. Um, um, it it, re it resonated the best for him, and it resonates when you go to China and you start talking about how Jung viewed the psyche. They agree, they say that's how we look at it, and um, so anyway. But he always he did say he kept the ego. He said you have to keep the ego, and I think for him there are two things that I would want to mention, Michael. One is that. He really feared going crazy, and if he lost the ego completely, I think he would have gone. He would have. He worried about becoming insane. He, I mean, one of the one of the fantasies in here is where he's talking to a psychiatrist and he's telling him that he's insane. You know, he's talking. And there's another thing that I want that at Jung's funeral in 1961, his minister said, you know, Jung was a heretic. Because his of his belief in the evil, belief you know in the devil, and I mean in the way he conceptualized and experienced all that. So these are, you know, that uh, I think he went. I mean, when I read this, it's uh, believe me, it looks pretty deep to me. <laughs> That's what I'd say. Thank you. Yes, Paul. Paul. Let me run this by you, Tom, and see whether this makes any sense. In terms of the earlier question of why is the Red Book selling so well these days, uh, what's been going on for the past 20, 25 years has been a 
tremendous attempt to undermine and disestablish death psychology uh, in the culture. Uh, managed care doesn't like it. It takes too long. Uh, it's non-biological. Uh, it's not oriented to medication primarily, which makes it more expensive as well. Uh, psychology doesn't like it because it's hard to validate through research and evidence-based treatments or uh, the thing that are getting pushed, and these tend to be behavioral with no, or cognitive with no real relationship to an unconscious. And in terms of what's being publicized in the culture from these various interest groups, Jungian uh, <coughs> analysis, Freudian analysis are getting pushed very much to the margins. Uh, the fact that the Red Book is selling this way suggests to me that that effort has not been entirely successful. And uh, it's, to me, a source of encouragement and hope, actually. Paul, could you identify yourself so people know who you are? Uh, Paul Watsky, I'm a member of the San Francisco Young Institute. Thank you. Let me, let me say one other thing. In, um, in June, from June 17th, June 17th to August 1st, at the Library of Congress in Washington, D.C., there's going to be an exhibit on Jung. And I think this is another evidence of the fact that there's something in the collective that is um, value, validating and valuing Jung's approach in a way that, to me, would have been unthinkable 50 years ago. So... Um, And the Red Book has something to do with it. And there's some, I think what Paul is saying is, is certainly um, is true. I mean, we've been, we've tried, we've, you know, Jungians have been marginalized because we were not psychoanalysts. And now we're together with the, because Freud, Freud, the, Freud has come under quite an attack in the last 25 years. And so uh, psychoanalysts are, not too happy with their lot right now either, so we're we're sort of more together than we ever have been because we kind of we're we're downtrodden together. <laughs> and isn't it true that there's been more and more of a dialogue between there's, the Freudian and Jungian? Community? There is more and more of a dialogue between the Jungian and Freudian community, but it's when you get to this kind of stuff that's in this book, mm -hmm. there's right. a there's a divide. Yeah, yeah. There's a divide. Okay, let's open it up to those beyond the Friday. No. Is that about the Jungian, uh, when that Library of Congress thing is? June 17th to August 1st, and on June 19th, which is a Saturday, there's going to be an all-day symposium at which the morning session is going to be on the Red Book with Jim Hillman and Ann Ulanoff. And in the afternoon, we're going to have Freud and Jung with Ernst Falzater and... George Macari, who's a psychoanalyst, and then there's going to be a panel on self-analysis with John Beebe and myself. Wow. Let's hear from some women. Yes, please. I have a question about the mythology. It's hard for me to believe with Jung's awareness of, of so many cultural mythological systems that he wasn't aware of the way the Nazis warped and manipulated the Nordic mythology in order to 
to uh, increase their own prestige. Is there any indication in his writings that he had any awareness of what was being done? He, the, what I've gotten from C.A. Meyer, who was his honorary secretary from 1933 to 1940 of this um, um, organization, which he was, he was president of at the time. Um, I mean, they thought this would all last six months and then go away. That's really what they thought, both Meyer and Jung. And they were just shocked at it. I think a lot of other people were shocked that it kind of took hold like it did. And one of the things that Jung did, which is very interesting, is that when they had, when this became an international organization, Jung had uh, Mr. Rosenbaum, a Jewish lawyer, make up the statutes, just kind of to tweak the, uh, the Nazis. <laughs> I mean, it's the kind of thing he would, this, this is a typical Jung type of thing to do, which would be just, let's tweak him a little bit, mm -hmm. okay? Now, the, but there's, he never publicly either writes or stay, says anything. He made <coughs> private apologies to people after the war, right after the war, including to my father, including to Leo Beck, who is the rabbi of uh, Berlin. Um, but he... he he never, he never made a public apology. Mm -hmm. Yes? Uh, in paraphrasing your last sentence, in your hook, the Jungians, you say, although basically in the future we may, you know, Jungians, we may not be called Jungians, but we will still be here. Could you expand more on who this we is? What is the I didn't say we will be there. I said there will always be people <laughs> who are interested in the unconscious and in and in following that path, whatever it's called. That's what I meant by that. Mm -hmm. And I, yeah, and, I, and I'm, I didn't care what it's named. No, you're not caring what it's named, but, but the basic premise is that people who believe and, and work with the unconscious. Right. Yeah. yeah. Yes. This, I, I'm not a Jungian. I read Jung when I was in college, you know, several decades ago. But I think I re remember reading something that he wrote. That was that there was a difference between manipulating symbols and true creativity. That was kind of yeah. say it again. Between there was a difference between manipulating symbols and and true creativity. That was kind of the idea that came into my mind. The idea like, of manipulating is not a word that strikes me as a word that Jung would use. No, I don't think that that's an exact quote, but this idea that you, that symbols, you know, there's a difference between, you know, I'm just in my own phrase, sort of investing in symbols and then bringing something out of this <coughs> in terms of, and, and one of the things I just wondered, it seems today that we have so many symbols and that we are manipulated by symbols and everything is branded. And I, there's so much, you know, especially with young people, I just see them going from brand to brand, to symbol to symbol. And I just wonder if you could just talk a little bit about that. And, and there seems like there's a, sort of um, unhealthy use of getting this material into the unconscious and pulling it back out again. I mean, is it, 
it seems like that this whole thing of the Nazis this is one of the things that they were very good at. Uh -huh. And I'm just wondering if you see what's happening in the world today, which I think is sort of frightening, as being a sort of a construct for for you know using the psyche in this way that's really different than a sort of a, a creative. Uh, oh boy, I mean. <laughs> uh, I don't know what to say about that. I mean, you know what I'm tempted to say to you is that one of the main people who brought American advertising to the radio and television, or mainly the radio, was the nephew of Freud, a name Bernays. I can't remember his first name now. Edward, Edward Bernays, thank you. And, um, you know, I mean, images can be misused. Um, I think what I would say is that a lot of what, what we would say is traditional religious symbols don't, don't, have the, don't hold the meaning for us anymore. So that what happens is that these symbols get, get out there and we, uh, we're, all t we're all looking, unconsciously looking for something to hold on to. And... Uh, and that we can get manipulated that way because there's no, we don't have a structure or a, a method for holding on ourselves anymore. I think it's the loss of, of um, and I mean, I'm not for, I don't, I mean, I'm not for standard religion. I mean, Jung is a secular, a secular religion person, really. I mean, he believes in secular religion. That's the way I put that. Let me, let me ask a, an additional question. Sure. Um, uh, Jung, when, when you went to see Jung, he was studying UFOs. Yes. And um, he was fascinated by synchronicities throughout his life where things in the real world uh, accorded with things that were happening in the inner world. Right. So his dreams, which many other people were having of global carnage just before World War One. Right. Uh, other synchronicities at key points in his own inner development, <coughs> finding a dead bird on his estate that was very rare, a kingfisher or something right, like right, that. Right. So there were numerous things like this. The UFO phenomenon he treated as a psychological phenomenon, as a symbol of wholeness. Right. But again and again, he puts out the concept of synchronicity he puts out the concept that in the inner world that these, uh, these figures, Philemon and many others, have their own dynamic reality psychologically. Uh, he points to synchronicities in the real world, but he never takes a position on the nature of that synchronous connection. Is that correct? That's correct. Yeah. That is correct. So that enabled him to keep the scientific right. position that he held. Right. And yet there was a tension between that scientific position and his pointing to these deeply mysterious relationships. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. And he publicly wouldn't commit himself. Right. So privately, what did he think? I don't know. Cause <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think, he, I think he was much more open to them actually be happening in the real world than he would ever write or put down. Mm -hmm. and, 
And one other thing that we haven't really touched on as much, although you mentioned it, is when he makes the transition from his career as a professional psychiatrist and a university teacher and so forth to this focus on the inner world and the Red Book and so forth, that's also the period of time when he buys the piece of land in, how do you say it, Kusnacht? No, in, uh, in, um, in Bollingen. In Bollingen, right. He had the house in Kusnacht. That was built in 1909. Okay, okay. But he, he sort of moves himself in that period of that transition right. to a piece of land and, continue, and builds this tower. Right. right. And so there's this uh, Jennifer Stoles here who thinks a lot about sacred space. There's, a, there's a, a tremendous grounding of this inner work right. in it, his experienced it, uh, exactly. daily life. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Very much so. Yeah. And it's very interesting because I was taken out to the this tower is right on the lake at the at the far end of the lake, about twenty kilometers from his house in in Kusnacht. And um, Switzerland being so small, I mean it, it's practically you can practically see it from the train. There's a train stop there, but it you can't and it's 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 really private. Um, I went out, we went out, my wife and I, we went out with um, Franz Jung, the son, and he would tell us that um, every day he was out there, there would always be one or two Americans coming out looking for the Tower of Bollingen. Mm -hmm. And as he said that, not synchronistically, but you know, a little <laughs> later, maybe five minutes later, up comes a, a couple with a backpack. Um, could you tell us where, you know, where the tower is? And so Franz Jung, very nicely, he was about 85 at the time, and he said, well, it's just over there, but it's private property. But if you go around, you can take a look at it from you know, over there. So I, I always thought the, the tower itself has had that kind of um, sacred space connected to it. Mm, wonderful. Yeah. Well, yeah. thank you again for being okay. with us. I'm sure people are going to want to be able to chat with you okay. and so on. But thank you again for this wonderful time. Okay.